0: Nothing is impossible. Maybe you knew that already. I knew it, but seemed to have forgotten it of late. And so I was, a couple of weeks ago, reasonably sure that Putin would not invade Ukraine. What an idiot. Nothing is impossible. You should know that if you immerse yourself in studies of war and violence, as I do. Because again and again in human history, the proof is there. Anything can happen. I think of the books of Svetlana Alekseevich when I say that which I recommend to you without hesitation she writes oral histories of the great horrors, wars and upheavals that the people of the Soviet Union endured pick up any one of her books, any one and you will soon uh, and I don't mean to trivialise it here but you will soon be gobsmacked it is incredible seemingly impossible stuff Who needs a novel? The truth is always far more fantastic, incredible, unthinkable, blood-soaked. One story, um, I think it's from her book about Soviet women in the Second World War, called The Unwomanly Face of War, tells us of a woman, uh, these are true stories, remember? It's oral history. Uh, This woman, I think she was a nurse, and she finds herself on the front line. A soldier lies uh, horribly wounded, And she has to drag him to safety before he bleeds to death out on the battlefield. She runs out there but finds she can't grab his arms and drag him back because one of his arms is hanging off. Neither can she halt the bleeding whilst it's hanging like that. It's attached only with the stringy, bloody sinews. She can't chop the thing off, she can't make a neat cut and sever the arm because she has no tools. No axe, no knife She's just a young nurse out there with nothing Nothing but courage I suppose So she bites his arm off She chews through the sinews The thing drops off Uh, She's able to stop the bleeding And drag him to safety Now I'm recounting this from memory Uh, There's no way I'm in a mental state right now To go back into those books So I hope I've got the details right That's how I remember it But I always think of this young nurse and imagine that before Barbarossa, her life might have been quite nice and normal. She might have studied for nursing in the library, cooked a meal when she went home in her nice warm kitchen, styled her hair, went to the cinema, and if you'd been there, you could have tapped her on the shoulder in the cinema and said into her ear, this time next year, you'll be on a battlefield chewing a man's arm off and she might just have laughed at you impossible things like that can't happen here I am in the cinema having a normal life and you're telling me that I will end up in that situation no there's another horrific story from her other book about Soviet children's memories of the war called Last Witnesses and uh, please scoot ahead by a minute here if you're an animal lover It's about uh, the siege of Leningrad and starvation. Some people, of course, uh, as we know, resorted to eating animals. Some people resorted to eating their pets. But we hear of one family who couldn't bring themselves to eat their own dog. So they swapped with their neighbours. They each took the other's dog. Okay, no more, no more. My point is just that when it comes to war, it seems that nothing is impossible. And I shouldn't have forgotten that. And so what's the ultimate impossible thing? The end of the world, isn't it? What's more unthinkable, unimaginable, than snuffing out civilization in a thermonuclear war? and yet as we've just said in war nothing is impossible i always felt uh, relatively safe uh, in terms of the nuclear threat with putin in charge uh, in charge of russia because uh, for all his hideous faults i thought well he at least has lived through the cold war And was in the thick of it, uh, stationed in Dresden with the KGB. He knew and knows very well what the nuclear threat is, what it means. Whereas people like Donald Trump had, I assume, very little idea. When Trump appeared, it was like handing nuclear power to a child. Like that uh, (laughs) scary kid from the Twilight Zone episode, whom everyone has to appease and pander to, or he could destroy us all with his mind. When uh, Trump was reported to have asked uh, three times in the space of one meeting, what's the point of having nukes if we can't use them? Why can't we use them? Why not? I just shuddered. Everyone thought that uh, the horrible comments Trump had made about grabbing women, that was the worst thing he'd ever said. Um, It was a horrible thing to say, of course, but I thought far, far worse is this... Because it's showing his utter ignorance of nuclear weapons and the concept of nuclear deterrence. You can't use them. That is their point. They are there to deter. They are not there to be used. So he seems like an oaf. Putin, in terms of his knowledge of the weapons and of his Cold War experience, seemed like an adult by comparison. You could say the same for the whole grey parade of old Soviet leaders who went before Putin. We feared them, um, so cold and inscrutable and severe, but at least they knew exactly what war was. Brezhnev was only 35 when the war started, Khrushchev 47, Andropov only 27, Gorbachev, a ten-year-old boy... You get my point, direct experience, fresh memory of war and its absolute horror. So there was perhaps some reassurance to be drawn from the fact that the old Soviet men at least won't be cavalier about war, having experienced some of its worst. Whereas someone like Trump, uh, rich, uh, privileged, sheltered, never seen war, surely he doesn't know what it's really like and what it really means. So when Trump and Putin both shook hands, I thought, well, Putin's the adult here. Brought up in Leningrad, born just six years after the end of that city's terrible siege, and then stationed in East Germany, present there as the Berlin Wall came down. Yeah, he knows. He won't be cavalier with nuclear weapons. Well, I say again, nothing is impossible. Of course, he hasn't used nuclear weapons. No one has since 1945. There's a nuclear taboo. You don't need me to tell you that. But, of course, since his terrible invasion of Ukraine, he has started hinting at it, dragging up old horrors which we might have thought we'd escaped after 1991. On Thursday, 24th of February, he said, to anyone who would consider interfering from outside, if you do... You will face consequences greater than any you have faced in history. All the relevant decisions have been taken. I hope you hear me. And then even worse, on Sunday, 27th of February, he announced he had put his nuclear forces on increased alert. I admit this was the first time since he invaded Ukraine that I was actually scared Before then, my reaction, of course, had been shock, uh, disbelief, uh, horror, but not actually cold fear and dread. But does Putin mean it? Is he genuinely threatening a nuclear attack? I'm trying to convince myself, just so that I can sleep at night, that no, he wouldn't actually press the button. He simply wants us to believe that he would wants us to believe that he's so fierce and determined and committed, that he would do anything to see victory for the motherland, even a nuclear strike. He wants us to believe he's mad enough to do it, perhaps, when in reality he's stone-cold sane. Is that the game here? If that's his tactic, it's known as the Madman Theory and is associated, of course, with Richard Nixon, who famously employed it during Vietnam. Let's look first at what Putin's Sunday order actually means, and then we'll go back to Richard Nixon and see what it means to be a practitioner of the nuclear madman theory. So Putin moved his nuclear forces to a heightened state of alert. Now, it's no surprise that nuclear weapons are... On alert. In Britain, we have four nuclear submarines, at least one of which is constantly, permanently out there in the oceans on patrol. And America, of course, has plenty of its nuclear missiles on hair trigger alert. See my episode in the archive from about one year ago, which is an interview with the former US Defence Secretary William Perry, co author of the book The Button, and it tells us there are plenty of nukes out there just ready to fly. This is a leftover from the Cold War, the era of the four-minute warning when you might have had just minutes to react to an incoming attack. But let's be clear, Putin has not moved his nuclear weapons to high alert. He has put them to a higher state than they were previously, yes, but higher alert is not the same as high alert. I quote here from Professor Lawrence Friedman's recent article in the Times about this. Unlike the Americans, with their five levels of defence conditions, the Russians have four. And this was a move up a notch to the second, still short of full preparedness. It appears to have involved little more in practice than to make sure that the nuclear command posts were fully staffed. So why did Putin do it then? It could, of course, just be a warning, a signal... And that's key to the madman theory. Just as in uh, the film Doctor Strangelove when the Russians have invented a doomsday device but didn't tell anyone, and Doctor Strangelove exclaims, ''Why didn't you tell the world?'' With the madman theory, you have to communicate your weird behaviour and your unsettling decisions and get everyone tweeting and fretting that you might be mad. As Strangelove says, you you have to tell the world. No point being quietly mad, you have to be demonstrably mad, or at least suggest that you are. But it has to be communicated, or it's pointless. The madman theory is all about unsettling and confusing your opponent. You have to make them think they have no idea what you might do next. And so they have to tread carefully because you're so unpredictable. They have to treat you with a bit of awe, a bit of respect, because we don't know what he's capable of. Trump tried to use the Madman theory in his dealings with North Korea, particularly when he threatened them with fire and fury. But, um, arguably, the Madman Theory didn't work with Trump because his behaviour was generally quite, um, how shall we say it, maverick, unpredictable. Madman theory only works if it can unsettle your opponent, but the opponent can believe that if they only offer a certain concession, then you will stop being mad and go back to your nice, normal, dignified, predictable behaviours. The madman only has clout if he's normally impeccably sane and if you want desperately to see him return to that state of sanity. Perhaps we see this with Putin. As I said earlier, when I saw him beside Trump, I thought, he's the adult there and I want him to go back to being an adult and stop this madness. The madman theory is eh, quite risky. Because you're relying on fear to compel your opponent. And that might work, of course, especially if you have nuclear arms. But if you choose to rely on fear, then you're edging out the prospect of reasonable behaviour. Why would your opponent uh, try to bargain and reason and discuss and reach a good old sensible resolution? They're dealing with a presumed madman after all, so what's the point in laying common sense and rational responses on the table. It also lessens the chance of you retaining or attracting allies, because who would ally with an unpredictable madman? Countries usually want their allies to be solid and dependable. You might also argue that the use of the madman theory is degrading to any country which regards itself as a great power. What kind of Great power ditches diplomacy and reason in exchange for play-acting. The madman theory is also dangerous, as it injects a lot of unpredictability into a situation, and this is what really worries me, the departure from predictable, established behaviour. This is perhaps fine in a particular negotiation where you've judged it will suit you to look a little bit crazy unstable, But what if something nasty happens outside that realm, outside that negotiation, outside that meeting room, you know, in the rest of the world? What if, whilst you're busy acting mad and unsteady and unpredictable, whilst you've got all your opponents cowering, worrying, thinking we've got no idea what he's going to do next, what if, at that moment, an unrelated crisis erupts? One which calls for cool heads and clear channels of communication. Haven't you squandered that by cultivating your madman image? Think of the infamous uh, Stanislav Petrov story of 1983. He was a Soviet officer working in the early warning system and he saw a single missile had been launched from America at the Soviet Union. He doubted that it was correct. And so he didn't escalate the matter, and so, arguably, saved the world from nuclear war that night. He knew that the single missile attack just wasn't right, or he took a gamble and guessed it wasn't right, because it was not a predictable action. He considered, quite reasonably, that if NATO was launching a first strike, they would unleash hell. They would hurl everything they had in the hope of knocking out or dramatically minimising the Soviet ability to retaliate. That is what he would have expected to see in a first strike. A single missile was unexpected, unpredictable, didn't make sense. But what if NATO or America had, at that point, been playing with the madman theory, trying to unsettle the USSR by being Unpredictable, by deviating from these usual rules and usual patterns of behaviour. What then? How would a Stanislav Petrov who'd been needled and unsettled and thrown into regular confusion have reacted that night? Playing the madman is a big, big gamble. There are plenty of examples of this across history. I think of um, Condoleezza Rice phoning Putin on 9-11 to say, America was raising its alertness level, but this was not because of Russia, nothing to do with Russia. And Putin said, understood, got the message, you won't get any trouble from us. And when she put the phone down, she thought, wow, the Cold War is really over. Communication and intentions and behaviours clearly expressed and safely received. That all goes to hell when you're playing the madman. So let's go back to the original practitioner of the madman theory, or the most famous one at least, Richard Nixon, and see how he played it. When Nixon came to power in 1969, he was quite sure he could bring the Vietnam War to a quick close. He didn't of course, it dragged on and on. And so Nixon turned to the madman theory, making the North Vietnamese and the Soviet Union fear that he was desperate enough to end this war that he would turn to nuclear weapons if pushed. So he gave the North Vietnamese a deadline and made it known that he expected progress in peace talks by 1st of November. And he had uh, his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, tell them, quote, "...if by 1st November no major progress has been made towards a solution, we will be compelled with great reluctance to take measures..." Of the greatest consequence. Nixon also told um, his advisors that he wanted the North Vietnamese to think he was unpredictable. He said, quote, I want the North Vietnamese to believe that I've reached the point that I might do anything to stop the war. We'll just slip the word to them that for God's sake, you know Nixon is obsessed about communism. We can't restrain him when he's angry. And he has his hand on the nuclear button. And then Nixon went even further in portraying a madman. Rather than just hinting at nuclear war, he took steps to show, or to imply, that he was serious. He raised the alert status of America's forces, or as uh, Henry Kissinger very casually put it in his request to the Defence Secretary, could you exercise the DEFCONs for a day or two? The President will appreciate it very much. A few days after that, in another move which would uh, not be missed by the Soviets, Strategic Air Command put 176 nuclear bombers on heightened alert. The journalist Garrett Graf, um, author of the brilliant book Raven Rock, tells us this was almost the precise number of bombers required to execute America's nuclear attack plan. And you'd better believe the Soviets noticed that. The ambassador soon requested an urgent meeting with Nixon, to which Kissinger said his purpose at the meeting will be, keep the Soviets concerned about what we might do. And it seems that worked. Dobrynin, the ambassador, reported back to Moscow afterwards that, quote, he will never accept a humiliating defeat or humiliating terms. And he went on, quote, "...events surrounding the Vietnam crisis now wholly preoccupy the US president." This is taking on such an emotional coloration that Nixon is unable to control himself, even in a conversation with a foreign ambassador. And then Nixon piled even more madman behaviour on top. On 26th of October, he began Operation Giant Lance where 18 B-52 bombers, armed with thermonuclear weapons, took off and were told to head up to the Arctic and aim for the Soviet border. Up there, they flew in loops, back and forth, back and forth, prying and teasing and alarming the Soviets, making their terrible presence known. We are up here and we are ready to go. This mission was not made public, but the Soviets certainly knew about it. It was described in uh, articles I have read as being loud but secret. After all, you're not trying to scare or send a message to the American public. No, this message is aimed solely at the communists, both Soviet and North Vietnamese. Loud but secret. Now, whilst uh, Nixon was acting the madman and sending his B-52s whizzing around the Arctic, the American population were protesting against the Vietnam War. Arguably, these famous protests uh, neutralised some of Nixon's madman scheming, as your enemy might see those huge popular protests and think, well, clearly this country is not hungry for the war to continue, let alone escalate to nuclear. So you might wonder if uh, popular protest neutralises the madman theory, showing it as a big fat bluff. And so maybe that's why Putin is clamping down so viciously on the anti-war protests currently taking place in Russian cities. Maybe you can't be an effective practitioner of the madman theory if your population or a good segment of them are sane, educated, informed and rational. We can only hope, of course, that Putin is dabbling in the madman theory, that this war does not escalate, and I hope desperately for peace in Ukraine. I am doing my small bit to raise funds for the Red Cross's Ukraine appeal. Um, If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I have synesthesia, which is a neurological condition which means... It means fusing of the senses. So when I hear a word, I also taste something. Every single word has a taste. So I've been offering to what I called Taste Your Name for Ukraine. So if you send me a PayPal donation and give me your name or a name that you want tasted, I will get back to you with the taste. And of course, every penny raised will go to the Red Cross Ukraine appeal. So find me on Twitter if you want to donate to that. I'm there as Julie A. McDevil and you can get me on Facebook also as Nuclear Britain. Another way you can help, if you haven't done so already, of course, um, you probably already have, you don't need me to suggest anything, but when I visited Chernobyl a couple of years ago, I went with the company Solo East. Um, I had them recommended to me indirectly by Top Gear. When they went to Chernobyl, they used Solo East to take them into the zone, and I thought, well, if it's good enough for the BBC and Big Clarkson, it's good enough for me. So I went with Solo East and I was taken around the zone. Um, My husband and I were the only visitors that day because we went on a horrible, miserable, lonely Tuesday in December. And it was just me and him and our guide, Igor. And Solo East's Facebook page um, has recently been showing Igor driving his family to Western Ukraine to safety. And he then made his way back east to take another family into the relative safety of the West. And so Louise said that they are currently accepting PayPal donations, which they will give to Igor and the rest of their staff. So um, I donated some money uh, through PayPal, which I said, please um, give this to Igor. And I hope that, well, I don't know, Igor knows best how to spend it, but I assume maybe fuel costs are going to be high if he's driving back and forth across Ukraine. So if you want to donate, it's uh, done through PayPal, so it's quite safe and then Solo East, they seem to have a representative in Canada just now who's um, organising this, and they will pass it on to the Solo East staff through, uh, I think it's called Monobank. I don't know what Monobank is, but anyway, I trust them to pass on those donations, so I hope those good people are able to get to safety, some kind of safety. But if you message Solo East on Facebook, they will give you their email address for safe PayPal donations. And I hope you'll forgive the silence, Um, I normally upload this podcast once a week, but um, I don't think I've done anything for the last fortnight, Um, like most of you I suppose, I've just been absolutely stricken by the news and just did not have the heart to podcast about this grim topic. But today, of course, I have pulled myself together and I hope you've liked, if that's the correct word, this episode. I will do another for you, I think we will look next time at tactical nuclear weapons, Because that is where I see the risk of escalation at this point. The use of a tactical nuke, that frightens me. And let me say hello to all my new listeners. I noticed that I got a lot of new listeners recently. Of course, I assume brought here because my topic is suddenly horribly relevant. So thank you for subscribing, thank you for listening. If you know anyone else who would be interested in this topic, please do send them a link to Atomic Hobo. So, next episode, I promise I won't make you wait another two weeks for it, will be on tactical nuclear weapons. If you want to support my podcast on Patreon, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash hobo, where you will find various benefits if you subscribe, one of which is access to extra podcast episodes. And let me thank my latest uh, patrons who've subscribed, Andrew B., Matthew Lees, and Stephen Spell. It's thanks to those three guys that I pulled myself together to get this episode out because, of course, when I get the email through with the ping and a new patron subscriber, I obviously felt guilty. People are paying for this, kindly donating money, and I'm sitting here just stuck to Twitter and the news, not able to do anything else. And I want to say thank you to everyone on Patreon and on Twitter or Facebook who sent me a message to say, hope you're okay. Of course, I'm as I said earlier, I'm fine. But um, I was horribly worried, of course, especially when Putin escalated to the, the nuclear alertness level. And it was just nice to have people saying, just sending a, a message, just dropping in to say, hope you're okay, hope you're not too worried, hope you're all right. And it reminded me that we have a nice uh, community here on this podcast of people who we all share the same interest. I assume we all share the same anxieties about this. And it was just nice to feel connected with you like that. So thank you everyone who who reached out to me. I really did appreciate that. And I'll be back in the next couple of days with another episode on tactical nuclear weapons.